0: Well, thank you for that, Cody. I didn't really think about it that way. I didn't think that this might be the last sermon that I preach as a member of Harvest Plains Church, which is... Oh, I won't be. We'll get you up there again. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I might not be a member then. Oh, you, you're saying before I leave. Okay, okay. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> well, yeah, as, as Cody said, we're going to be back in the book of Matthew for one last sermon before he, we take a detour into our series on spiritual leadership. And, and as Cody again said, this is, God has really providentially weaved these last sermons together as we uh, move forward into uh, spiritual leadership uh, discussion. And so I'm really excited about what we're going to learn this morning about leadership, about who are these men that God has called to lead the church, to be the first apostles and disciples, these 12 men. So if you can uh, turn your Bible open to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. God's word says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Elpheus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast by one of my favorite theologians, Owen Strahan. And he was talking about a topic that has been actually discussed by a lot of Christian leaders in the last few months, and it's the topic of elitism, or more specifically, evangelical elitism. And maybe you've heard of the the term elite before. Usually, well, really today it kind of has a negative connotation. If you're an elite, you know, you're some snobby person. Uh, But we shouldn't necessarily think of it negatively. The elites in society, and every society has its elites, are those really who have the most power and influence. Uh, We can think of uh, the elites in America. They would be our political leaders. They would be our presidents, our senators and governors and representatives. They would be those who control our our big institutions like our universities. Uh, They would be those who control our media. uh, And they certainly would be those who control really the big publishers of books and things like that and also those who control our big corporations. But as we think about evangelical elitism, we're thinking about not an office. Uh, we don't really have an office of elite in evangelicalism. We're not, Catholic, we're not Catholics. Uh, we don't have a pope. Uh, and so really this is just somebody who the broad majority of, of evangelicals sees as somebody that they respect or look up to or want to heed their advice. And so they would be those who... Our, control our, our Christian media. You can think of those who control the Gospel Coalition or Desiring God. There are those who are probably the presidents of our seminaries. Uh, there are those who publish the most books that we love to read. Uh, there are those who probably are the ones that are invited to speak at the biggest conferences in the country. And now, I say all this to ask a question, because this is the question that Dr. Stran asked in his podcast when he was talking about elites. If we were to choose today the 12 guys that would represent evangelicalism, that would represent Christianity in America, or let's say even in the world, who would be the 12 guys that we would choose? Who would we choose? Who would you choose? If you were tasked individually with choosing 12 men to represent Christians in America, who would you choose? And I will admit that I would probably choose an evangelical elite. I would probably choose a guy like John MacArthur or Paul Washer or James White or these guys that I like to listen to, the guys that preach at all my favorite conferences and write all my favorite books. And there's nothing wrong with that. These guys are faithful men. But is that who Jesus would choose today? If he was to choose, hypothetically speaking, 12 from among us, is that who he would choose And I think that when we look at our text here this morning and we consider these 12 men, these 12 disciples that Jesus chose, we'll find that Jesus probably wouldn't pick the most educated from among us, the ones who write the best books and preach at the best conferences and run our institutions. He would choose average, common men, men that probably aren't even in ministry yet, men that you don't know. And I think that's really insightful, and really, it should be encouraging, because Jesus uses average people, average people like us, that don't necessarily have a seat at the table in society, so to speak. So now, as we think about the disciples, because that's really what we're going to be thinking about this morning, uh, we see two things has already happened with the disciples in our, our study of Matthew. One, they've already been called to salvation. These disciples have already been called to salvation, and they've already been called to leave their occupation, their work. Lay down your nets for Matthew, leave your tax-collecting booth. We saw that in Matthew 9. They've already heard Jesus preach and teach. You can think of the Sermon on the Mount. They've already watched Jesus heal, but they haven't yet done any real ministry. They haven't done anything yet. They've just been students. They've just been learners, and then, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, the last sermon that Cody preached on Matthew, the last thing that we saw, verse 37 of chapter 9, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this, into his harvest. So that's the last thing that we just saw. He tells them, pray. Pray that the Father would send out laborers into the harvest field. And then we see verse 1, and then he calls his disciples back to him. It's implied that these disciples actually listened to what Jesus said, and they actually went and prayed. And then he calls them back to him, and what this implies is that they're the, the answer to their own prayer, which is kind of crazy. If you start praying, God, send out more laborers out into the harvest field, and you're not in the harvest field laboring, be careful. God might actually answer your prayer by putting you in the harvest field. Now, all that to say, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to just, it's a very simple outline. We're going to look at three facets of the 12 disciples. Three facets of the 12 disciples. Their call, their work, and their identity. Their call, their work, and their their identity. And we're going to spend most of the time on their identity. We're going to look at each of these 12 men. And hopefully we can get through these first two quickly because going through 12 men is going to take some time. So the first... Facet, the call of the twelve. Like I said, we've already seen their salvation call. We've already seen them called unto salvation. And we've already seen them called to give up their occupation, called, really, into ministry. And we see this even today. A young man is saved by hearing the gospel. And then, maybe later on in his life, he feels God's call into ministry. And part of that call, then, is a call to go get training. That's why so many men who are called into the ministry go to seminary for three or four years to study, to be trained for feeding God's sheep. And so this is exactly what we've already seen. Jesus calls these men to be trained, to be his disciples. And they've been in their training for about a year and a half now. And we come to a third call, and that's really the call that we see in our text. Look at verse 1 again. And he called to him his 12 disciples. This is a call to practice ministry. This is a call to practice ministry. It's a mini mission trip, so to speak. It's an internship. It's a co-op. And we know this very well. If you go to college and you are studying for some vocation in life, usually you want to try to get experience doing that before you actually graduate. Get your feet wet a little bit. That's exactly what this is. They're still being trained. The three years aren't up yet. We're halfway through, and Jesus is going to let them get their feet wet a little bit. And I've experienced this in my own life in ministry. Uh, When I joined Ambassadors for Christ International, I got to go over to Egypt and Ethiopia and do ministry with my mentor, Dan Rudman. And I was able to preach under his guidance and under his instruction. I got my feet wet a little bit. And that's really important when we are thinking about training disciples and training God's future leaders. Not only does it require instruction, but it also requires practice. And Jesus is going to let them practice, and he's going to keep them on a leash, so to speak. Now, again, look at the text. I want you to notice something really interesting here. And he called to him his twelve disciples. What does disciple mean? Disciple literally means learner. He called to him his 12 learners, his 12 students. He gave them authority. Jump to verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Matthew switches the terminology here. He just called them disciples, and now he calls them apostles. And that's really significant. Because at this point, they have been just learners. But now they're actually going to be ones who are sent out. That's what apostle, apostle literally means. Sent out one. And we even see, Cody will preach this in about a month, verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent out. That's why Matthew now calls them apostles, because they're actually going to do some ministry. They're going to be sent out by Christ, as Christ was sent out by the Father to do ministry. It's a very important thing going on in transition in their training, right here at this moment. So, again, as we said, this isn't a call unto salvation. This isn't a call to leave their occupation. This is a call to practice ministry, to do an internship. But now, what are they going to do on this short internship? What are they going to do on this mission trip, this short mission trip? Well, facet number two, the work of the twelve. The work of the twelve. Look at verse one again. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to, one, cast them out, two, to heal every disease and every affliction. You remember, we've already talked about this in our study of Matthew, the threefold ministry of Jesus. The threefold ministry of Jesus. We just saw it in in chapter 9 again. It's preaching, teaching, and healing. That's what Jesus does. He preaches the gospel, he teaches the law of God, and he heals. And that's exactly what these disciples are being trained to do. They're being trained to do what Jesus does. They're being trained to carry on this ministry once Jesus is gone. But understand this. Jesus does His ministry by His own authority. He alone has authority to preach. He alone has authority to teach. He alone has authority to heal. We don't have any authority to do any of these things. I have no authority to get up here and preach the Word of God. None. I don't have authority to heal. I don't have authority to teach doctrine unless it's delegated to me. And so that's what we see. Jesus delegates authority to them. He gave them authority because they don't have it intrinsically. Know this about your leaders in the church. They aren't your authority in their essence. They're called by God and they're equipped and they're delegated authority by God. And they're going to have to give an account one day for how they steward that authority that Christ gave them. So just know that. They're doing the same ministry Jesus is and they're given authority by Jesus to do it. They're being trained for this. And now this isn't their their final commission. Again, we're going to see that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Again, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the final commission. You make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching we're going to see that eventually. I'm sure it'll be about a year out. (laughs) But this isn't graduation day yet. This is, again, just an internship. So that brings us to our, our third and final facet of the 12. And this is where we're going to be for the rest of the sermon. The identity of the 12. The identity of the 12. Who are these men? Now, before we get into the names, the specific names, I want you to consider a few things about them. First, I want you to consider the number 12. Why 12 men? Why 12? Why not 20, 50, I don't know, 100? Why not as many as you could possibly get so that you could be more effective in spreading the gospel faster? Well, obviously, this should make us think about the 12 tribes of Israel. Really, these 12 disciples are a direct parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel, And the Bible even tells us that the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, are actually going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel one day. So this causes us to think about the 12 tribes of Israel. If you remember from your Old Testament, God called a man named Abram. He renamed him Abraham. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel, and Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Of Israel, And these men are the physical fathers of a, of a physical people, of a nation. And they sow physical seed and bring forth physical offspring. I hope you understand what I mean there. But these 12 disciples, they are spiritual fathers who are called to sow a spiritual seed to create a spiritual people, the church and the seed that they sow is the gospel they are tasked with bringing a spiritual people into existence god has 12 ordinary average uneducated men to do this to create a spiritual people to create the church for the sowing of a spiritual seed the gospel that's incredible only 12 and they're not the elites of the day that's for sure that's crazy. That's incredible. He uses weak, ordinary men. And this is obviously to display his glory. This is a pattern that God you know, shows us throughout the scriptures. Think of Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. But you have a barren wife. What? He does this to display his glory, his sovereignty, his control over it his plan and purposes. Think of Jonathan and his armor bearer going against all these Philistines, Gideon and his 300, Samson versus all these Philistines, Elijah versus the 850 prophets, false prophets. God uses few men, weak men, average men, to do great things so that we understand that God is in control. We need to understand this. But now, what else can we learn before we really get into these names specifically, the second observation I want you to make is just simply how these, these, this list is structured. And if we're not going to go to all the other lists, but there's four lists of the apostles in our Bible. Four lists. And all these lists are pretty similar. There's a little bit of some differences between them. But here's the commonalities. Here's how they all are the same. All of the four lists have, are split, in, split into three groups of four. Three groups of four and peter is always the head of the first group philip is always the head of the second group and james the son of Alphaeus, is always the head of the third group and that's pretty interesting peter is always the first apostle always to be listed judas iscariot is always the last apostle to be listed obviously because he's the one that betrayed jesus peter is listed first cuz he is the leader he's the first among equals he's the spokesperson And the first group of four, they are the ones that are the closest to Jesus. They are the ones that we actually have the most information about in our Bibles. And we have the most information about Peter. And as you go to the second group of four, we have less information. And finally, to the last group of four, we have virtually nothing about these men other than their names. Except Judas Iscariot because he was the betrayer. Now, I want you to understand this before, again, we get into these names. This is really important to realize. Jesus, as we know, is fully God and fully man. Jesus only has 24 hours in a day, just like you and me. Jesus doesn't have all the time in the world to train all the men in the world. He can only pour into a few, practically speaking. And he chooses just 12. And of those 12, he just chooses four to really pay attention to. And of those four, he really gives most of his time to only three. Peter, James, and John. Now, I want you to understand this just in light of our own present experience here in Harvest Plains. As we begin to grow as a church and hopefully God blesses us and we can continue to see people come to Christ and come into this church, Cody is not going to be able to spend time with everybody. And that's probably harder for him to hear than you. <laughs> Cody loves to be with people. But practically speaking, he has to choose some to spend most of his time with. And we have to realize that Cody also has a family. He has six in his household that he has to give priority to and train and disciple. He has a couple men that he's preparing for eldership. He has to give most of his time to them. He has some in this church that are in seminary. They're going to go into ministry. And so before you know it, Cody's time is taken up. And you just have to realize that if you don't get a lot of face time with the pastor, it's not because he doesn't like you. He loves you. But we all only have 24 hours in a day. And we have to realize that. So enough said. Let's actually look at these men. Look at the text. Verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Why first? First, Simon. Not because he was called first but because he is the leader of the 12. He's the spokesperson. He's the first among equals. And we say first among equals because he has n- no greater authority than any of the other ones. They're all apostles. And the same is true with the local church elder. Once Harvest Plains gets these elders, these three elders, they all have the same authority. They're all elders. But certainly Cody will be the first among equals as the spokesperson, as the one who comes up into the pulpit and preaches on a regular basis. And that's exactly what we see among these 12. Peter is the first among the equals. He's the leader. So who is Simon called Peter? Well, let's begin with his name. Simon, his original name, was the most popular name given to Palestinian Jewish men in that time. So nothing special there. His father is named Jonah or John. We see both in scripture. His brother is the apostle Andrew. We're going to look at him in just a second. He comes from Bethsaida, but he owns a house in Capernaum. As we already mentioned, his occupation is that of a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And finally, he is married. And I think it's implied to that he probably has kids. And Paul even talks about how he brings his wife and family along on his ministry journeys. It's really fascinating. He has a family. Now, Jesus renamed Simon Peter. And this is kind of a common occurrence in the Bible when God calls a man to be used as a leader For his people, think of, again, Abram is renamed Abraham. Jacob is renamed Israel. Simon is renamed Peter. Now, our English name Peter is from the Greek name Petros. And Petros is the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic name Cephas. That's why you sometimes see in the scriptures Peter called Cephas, because that is his Aramaic name. Cephas means rock. Petra in Greek means rock. And petros means stone. So Jesus renames Simon Peter with a meaning of you're a rock, you're a stone, you're weighty, you're a foundation, so to speak. Now, we'll observe throughout the Gospels and Acts that Peter is called Simon sometimes, Peter sometimes, and sometimes Simon Peter, both together, even after he's renamed Peter. And that's kind of interesting. And you'll also notice something really interesting, that even though Jesus renamed Simon Peter, there's an interesting context when Jesus decides to still call him Simon. And if you study that context around Jesus using the name Simon, what you'll notice is that Jesus calls him Simon when he's acting like his old self. That is fascinating. That is rebuke in a name. And think of it this way. This is a common occurrence. Moms like to use the middle name of a kid. So for me, it would be Samuel Christopher Parada. My mom's back there. I obviously never heard that because I was a perfect child. But (laughs) (laughs) but I, I can just imagine that if I heard my middle name, I would have been terrified. Rebuke in the name itself. And that's exactly what... We see with Jesus calling this new man, Peter, Simon, his old name. Simon, Peter, you're acting like your old self. You're acting like a worldly person. I'm sure it would have sent chills down Peter's back when he heard Jesus say, Simon. Well, now, how is Peter the rock, the stone? Why did Jesus name him this? I'm sure we'll get into that more in Matthew 16, eventually, because that's really where we see that fleshed out, but... Really, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So in some real sense, Peter, especially as the leader of the apostles, is a foundation. And what do you build foundations out of? Stone, rock, bedrock. He also makes a great confession in that passage in Matthew 16. And Jesus is on this rock, I'll build my church. So in some sense, you can think of it as he has this great confession and the confession itself is a rock. I think both are somewhat true. Now, let's dig into a little bit of his character as we finish up our look at Peter. We know that he's a bold man. So bold that he denies to Jesus' face that he should die. You won't die, Jesus. I won't let it happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter's the only one in Scripture that's called Satan besides Satan. And he's the leader of the apostles. That's crazy. He's bold. He he speaks before he thinks. He's courageous. Certainly not timid. He's the only disciple to jump out of the boat boat and walk on the water when Jesus is walking on the water. And he starts to do it. And then he gets scared and he starts to think. And we think, oh, wow, Peter lacks faith. But notice something. He was the only one that actually got out of the boat. All the other disciples were cowering in fear and stayed inside. Again, courageous. He promises to Jesus that he'll never deny him. I'll never deny you. Jesus says, you will, three times. In the garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus is betrayed, well, as Jesus is being betrayed, Peter just whips out his sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Doesn't even really think twice about it. Just does it impulsive, bold. We see at the end of John when Jesus is resurrected and he visits his disciples. His disciples are fishing in a boat about 100 yards offshore and they recognize Jesus and Peter just can't wait to paddle the shore. It's going to be five minutes maybe tops and he just can't do it and he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. He needs to be with Jesus. He loves being with Jesus. And even notice something. The time when, when, uh, when uh, Peter denies Jesus three times, notice where the other disciples are. They're not there. Why is Peter there? Because he loves to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. Yes, he has a moment of failure and sin there, and sin there. but man, he's, he, he loves Jesus. Man, he wants to be close to him. So we see that about Peter. He also is a great preacher. He's the one that stands up at Pentecost and preaches a bold sermon. And 3,000 souls are saved. And again, as I mentioned, Peter by far speaks the most out of any apostle in the Bible. Indeed, behind the name of Jesus, the name Peter is used more than any other name in the New Testament. It's one of the most common Greek words used in the Bible. Not only does he speak the most, but he's spoken about the most. Half of the book of Acts is all about the ministry of Peter. And as we already said, he opens his mouth without thinking. He's quick to ask questions, even if they're ignorant and dumb. He's impulsive and active. He's not lazy. He's not passive. He's not timid. Here's the deal. Peter has the raw material of a leader. The raw material. And you really need to understand this. You really need to understand this. Oftentimes, we want somebody leading us who's soft and timid and kind of gets along with everybody and isn't really outspoken, doesn't really say his mind. That's not the type of man that God uses to lead his church. He uses a type like Peter. And what he does with that man is he hones him and trains him and directs him. Peter is a rock, and Jesus is shaving the rock with another rock, and he's making him into an arrowhead that he's going to use with accuracy and precision. Or think of it as a big stone cut from the quarry and you're going to shave its edges off so that you can lay it down as a foundation for a building. That's Peter. That is the type of man that we want to lead our church. A go-getter. Now, we know that Peter was arrested in 41 by Herod Agrippa I. He miraculously escaped. We see that in Acts. And then he went to another place. We really don't know where Peter was between 41 and 48. 48 is the Jerusalem council. He's there. And then after that, everything gets foggy. We don't know where Peter is. Church tradition has him in Rome during Nero's reign where he is crucified on a cross upside down in about the year 64. Tradition says that he was first forced to witness his wife die by crucifixion. And tradition says that he was at the foot of her cross saying, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And then he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. He was faithful to the end. So that's Peter in a nutshell. Very relatable, very zealous. I'm sure a lot of us can relate with him, and God used him greatly. It's incredible. The next man, Andrew, the brother of Peter. So everything we said about the upbringing of Peter is true of Andrew, fisherman from Bethsaida. Andrew's name means manly, so obviously there's no need to change it. (laughs) Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist before following Jesus. We see that in John 135. As we see in John's gospel, he was the first to follow Jesus first to recognize him as Messiah. We don't know much more about him other than that, though. It's about it. Church tradition says that Andrew led the wife of a provincial governor to Christ, and then when she would not recant her faith, the governor had Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross. Tradition says that he hung on the cross for two days and preached the gospel to anyone who passed by until he couldn't speak anymore and then finally died. Faithful to the end brings us to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Brothers, second pair of brothers that we see. Now James is likely the eldest brother because he's listed first. They come from a family of fishermen as well. Jesus calls them to follow him while fishing with their father and their father is left with the hired hand. So they're probably more well off than Peter and Andrew. They're well off enough to actually hire people to work with them in their fishing operation. In Luke 5.10, we learn that James and John fished with Peter and Andrew as well. So they knew each other. Jesus names James and John the, or nicknames them the sons of thunder, which is quite the nickname. It means they're bold, courageous. Again, no wonder they're in the first group. These are the true leaders. These are the ones that would go do great things in the early church, especially John. Bold, courageous, zealous, for Christ type of men. You might even remember that they asked Jesus for permission to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village that refused entry to Jesus. That's crazy. Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy all these people? Like they, and they actually believe that if Jesus said yes, they would have done it and it would have happened. Bold. They also ask Jesus if they can get the permission to sit at his right and his left when he sits in glory. And he, they actually get his, their mom to ask him, which is kind of funny. <laughs> mom, go ask him that. <laughs> and then he addresses them, though. <laughs> Very funny. But he says, no, I don't have that authority. The father has authority to determine who's going to sit at my right and left. Now, James was the first disciple to die for Jesus. He was martyred by Herod Agrippa I in AD 41. And this is revealing because it means that Herod Agrippa I was threatened by James. James was obviously so proficient in spreading the gospel in Jerusalem and causing trouble that Herod goes, I need to get James off the streets. I need to kill James. And he does. And it was effective. And so what did he do? He decides, I'm going to go arrest Peter too and kill him as well. Except Peter was miraculously saved, as we already mentioned, from the prison. We see that in Acts. So both James and Peter, bold leaders in Jerusalem, faithful with spreading the gospel. Now just by way of reminder of James, James, the Apostle James, is not the James who wrote the Epistle James in our Bible, nor is he the James that we see at the Jerusalem Council remember, this James, the Apostle James, died in AD 41. The, the Jerusalem Council was AD 48. James is already dead by that point. The James that wrote our epistle and that was at the Council was James the brother of Jesus, who didn't actually come to faith in Christ until after the resurrection. So, let's think about John for a moment here. John is the author of the fourth gospel, the author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the epistles, and the author of the Revelation. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself in his gospel. He's a pillar in Jerusalem. Again, he is a son of thunder, remember. He's bold as well. He's the one who leaned over to Jesus at the Last Supper and asked him who the betrayer is. He's the only one that we know that was present at Jesus' crucifixion And he was tasked by Jesus with taking care of his mother Mary. John was the first to see the risen Christ. Actually, Peter and John raced to the empty tomb, and John was obviously faster, so he got there first. And he's also the one to live the longest. And if you remember from the end of John, you remember the same story where Peter jumps out of the boat to swim to shore to see Jesus first. When they get to shore, they're having a meal, breakfast around a charcoal fire, and Jesus is restoring Peter to ministry, and he's... Asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. And then he tells Peter how he's going to die in order to glorify him. And then what does Peter do? What about him? Looks over at John sitting there. Well, what about him? How's he going to die to glorify you, Lord? And then Jesus says, what's it to you if he never dies? And so then a rumor went around among the disciples that John was never going to die. And then John writes in his gospel, he writes this story in order to correct the rumor. No, I'm not going to live forever. And you should understand, again, Peter's speaking before he thinks. Like, don't look at your neighbor. Be faithful to follow Christ yourself. You might be called to do something, die in some horrible way for the sake of Christ, and another might not. But nonetheless, John lives the longest, even though he doesn't live forever. It's thought that John stayed in Jerusalem until Mary, the mother of Jesus, died. And after that, we know that John was banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the west coast of Asia Minor. His death is near AD 98. That brings us to Philip. He is the leader of the second group of four. Now, this is not the Philip who was the deacon in the early church in Acts who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. That's a different Philip. Now, Philip is a Greek name. It means lover of horses. In my mind, that should have been changed. (laughs) Philip is from Bethsaida, like Peter and Andrew. And again, we learn virtually nothing about Philip from the first three Gospels. All we know is from John's account. And John tells us that immediately after Jesus called Philip to follow him, he goes and tells his best friend Nathaniel about Christ. So he's rather evangelistic. The next time that we see Philip in John's Gospels in the feeding of the 5,000, we're actually going to read this account because it's really insightful at the character of Philip. John 6, 1 through 11. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, listen closely to what he says to him. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has fish, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when, they, when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So, this is really interesting. Jesus asks Philip a question to test him. The question is this, where are we to buy bread? A very specific question. Buy bread. And it's implied that Philip did not pass the test. He answered incorrectly. Because he was thinking too pragmatically, too naturally. This is what John MacArthur says, He should have responded like this. If he wanted to pass the test, this is what he should have said. Lord, you made the water into wine, stilled the storm, and have healed every kind of disease. Why bother trying to buy so much food when all you have to do is say the word and create the food necessary to feed all these people? That's what he should have said. He he did all the calculations in his head, though, and goes, ah, 200 denarii, that that don't even do the trick. Wrong answer, Philip. Wrong answer. Now he probably asked Philip this question obviously because Philip struggled with natural thinking. He's too pragmatic. Jesus was teaching him a lesson. And here's the lesson for our leaders in the church today. We don't want leaders who are too pragmatic in the way they think. We want leaders who think spiritually and supernaturally, who trust God for miraculous things. We don't just look at the number of seats in the sanctuary and go, well, I guess that's all we can preach to. It's, God's limited by the number of seats in our sanctuary. God's limited by our budget. We set this budget. Well, I guess it's an infallible budget. That's, we can only do ministry up until this point. And you see a lot of pastors like that today who are just all about the business, all about the numbers, doing all the calculations in their head. Making the bulletin look great, making sure the slides are perfect, all this other fluff. Jesus wants leaders who are spiritually oriented, are thinking spiritually, thinking supernaturally, trusting God for great things. Knowing that God can do whatever He wants to do in and through us, no matter how much money we have in the bank account. Now, church tradition has Philip dying as a martyr, like many of the disciples common theme. It was reported that he was stripped naked, hung upside down by his feet, and then stabbed with stakes through his ankles and thighs until he bled to death. In a similar fashion to Peter, he told his executioners not to shroud his body with linen since he was unworthy to be covered in linen cloth as the Lord was at his burial. Again, faithful to the end, humble, and loved Jesus. Bartholomew. Bartholomew was from Bethsaida, like Peter, Andrew, Philip, and so they were probably all close friends. They knew each other, certainly. And the first, uh, the first three Gospels referred to him as Bartholomew, while John always refers to him as Nathaniel. His name means son of Talmai. Now, as I mentioned, Philip immediately told Nathaniel about Christ when Philip was called to be a follower of Jesus. And Nathaniel when told that we have found the Messiah, Philip tells him this, he's, and, he, and he says he's from Nazareth, Nathanael scoffs. And he goes, Nazareth? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. So he might be a little bit prejudiced. And then, when Jesus approaches, Jesus says something great. Hey, look, look at Nathanael, a true Israelite. And Nathanael goes, you don't know me. How do you know me? Skeptical. And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Some, Nathaniel knew nobody saw me under the fig tree. Jesus was displaying his omniscience. He knows everything, he sees everything, and immediately Nathaniel confesses him as the Messiah. And he follows him. That brings us to Thomas. Again, all that we know about Thomas is given to us by John, he's not mentioned really in the first three Gospels. And we'll obviously remember Thomas from the famous resurrection scene where we get the name Doubting Thomas. But before that, we see that Thomas is the first one who is willing to die with Christ. John 11:16, 16. Thomas literally says, I will die with you, Jesus. Again, loved Jesus. Loved him. Was willing to die with him. Was faithful. But he had this... Ignorant thinking going on. He really didn't understand the true nature of Christ. He really didn't understand the true mission of Christ. The mission to die, be resurrected, and ascend to the Father until his second coming. Indeed, when Jesus was explaining to his disciples that he was going away to prepare a place for them, Thomas says, we do not know where you are going. How will we know the way? Thomas wants to be with Jesus, just like Peter, and really all of them. And he's like, Lord... We don't know where you're going. How are we going to know how to get there? Because we want to be with you. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, Thomas. But yet it still didn't click. It still didn't click. So that's why when Jesus died and was buried, Thomas, his life was destroyed. He was devastated. Everything that he thought, he believed, just went to shambles. And that's where we get this name, Doubting Thomas. And he says to the disciples, unless I see him and feel his scar or the spear went in and feel his hands and see his hands and the holes in them, I won't believe. And that's exactly what Jesus does in John 20, 24 through 29. He reveals himself to Thomas. He tells Thomas to look at his scars and feel his holes in his hands. It's really me, Thomas. And Thomas then confesses the most amazing confession in all of scripture, my Lord and my God. He believes. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I right now. We are those who believe even though we have not seen Jesus yet. One day we will. We will see those scars as Thomas saw. We may even get to feel the holes in his hand as Thomas did. But blessed are us who believe today, even though we have not yet seen him face to face. Now, a tradition has Thomas evangelizing in India. There's a church there to this day that claims they were founded by him, Mar Tama Church. And tradition has him dying by way of spear thrust through him. Brings us to Matthew. not going to say much about Matthew. We already talked about him in just chapter 9. He's a tax collector. Um, And obviously, the tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they really were sellouts. Now, I think there's an important point of application to make for us, though, in this point. Those who are called to the ministry, and really those who are called to faith in Christ, some of them, some of you, are going to have a a bigger cost, a higher immediate cost to follow Christ. And so, think about these fishermen who were called to follow Jesus they were actually able to go back and still go fishing. They could go back to their family business and fish. It wasn't a huge deal for them to leave the nets, so to speak. And that's fine. It's still a cost. But Matthew, if he left tax collecting, he would never be allowed to tax collect again. And if he left tax collecting, there is no way that any other Jew would ever hire him to do anything for them. He was hated by the Jews. When he left his tax-collecting booth, it was done. This is it. I'm following Jesus. I can't go back to anything. And for some of you, that will be your call. You'll be called to give up everything for the sake of Christ. And that's okay. Don't grow bitter and look at your neighbor who really his life didn't change much because he grew up in a Christian family and works in a Christian business and there really isn't much of a cost. But... Just remember that the persecution that you face when you follow Christ will be rewarded. It's for the glory of God. And so think of Muslims right now under Shari law in the Middle East. If they come to Christ, they're going to be killed. They're going to be excommunicated from their family, from their society. And we don't have to face that here in America. And so that's similar to Matthew. Some of our leaders are going to have a higher cost to do their work. Wherever, wherever they are in their life and whatever their occupation was. Now that brings us to James, James the son of Elpheus, the leader of the third group. Again, we really know nothing about James the son of Elpheus except the fact that he is referred to in Mark fifteen forty as James the Less, likely meaning the younger of the two James, or even less in influence of the two James. Both fit. Now James's mother was said to be at Jesus' crucifixion. Moreover, we are told in Mark that Matthew's father is also named Elpheus. Thus, it's a possibility that Matthew and James are brothers. There's there's a chance that they are brothers, which would make the third set of brothers in the 12. Now, church fathers say that James brought the gospel to modern-day Iran and was martyred there for preaching the gospel. That's really all we know about him. Thaddeus. In Luke six sixteen and Acts 1, 13, he's referred to as Judas, the son of James. And Thaddeus likely is a nickname for him. And Thaddeus literally means breast child. And it's usually a nickname given to the youngest child in a family. The, mom, the baby of the house, the mama's boy. And so probably Thaddeus was the youngest in his family and was nicknamed uh, Thaddeus because he was the youngest. But probably his real name is Judas the son of James. The only recorded words that we have of Thaddeus in scripture is John 14, 21. And church tradition says that Thaddeus was given the gift of healing and then he went to Syria and was used by God to heal many people, even the king of Syria, which helped to convert him and apparently the land could not handle the conversion of their king, including the king's nephew, who it is said beat Thaddeus to death with a club. That was his end. Simon the Zealot, almost done. Now, zealot could refer to his character or kind of like Peter and John, very zealous men. But more likely than that, though, is that Simon was an actual zealot. And the zealots were actually a, uh, a political party in Israel. You can think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious parties. The zealots were a political party, and their whole goal was to throw off Roman oppression. And they would do this with force. They were assassins. And they would kill key Roman leaders in order to overthrow the Roman government in Israel. And so Simon was likely that zealot. He probably killed people. He was probably an assassin. And again, Jesus is compiling an eclectic group of men. Why not put an assassin on your group? That makes sense. (laughs) But obviously, he must have left that when he followed Christ. (laughs) So, if we have a betrayer, why not a zealot? And speaking of the betrayer, we're finally to Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas means Yahweh leads. And Iscariot means men of Karath. So, Karath is a small town in Judah, south of Jerusalem, about 23 miles And he's the only disciple who's from Judah. All the other disciples are from Galilee in the north. And Judas has no call in Scripture, which makes sense. He's never called to follow Christ. We don't see that. And that's probably intentional because he was never saved. Judas didn't lose his salvation. Judas was always dead. A hater of God. Seeking his own gain. Now, Jesus obviously knew all along that Judas was his betrayer. John 6, 63 through 65. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So obviously, it was never granted by the Father for Judas to know Jesus salvifically. Now, the betrayer was predicted by David in Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 55, 12 through 15, and verses 20 through 21. Zechariah predicts the price of betrayal, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wa- as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. That's exactly what happened. Now, Judas had all of the disciples fooled. You've got to realize this. None of them knew that Judas was the betrayer. They had no idea. Even at the Last Supper, they had no idea. That's why John leaned over and said, who is it? Three years studying under Jesus, doing ministry together, and they still had no idea. And we should understand that for us today, the same is true for us. There's some among us right now, probably, that really aren't followers of Christ, even though we think they are. And they're having us all fooled. They're fooling us. They're saying the right things, doing the right things, but internally they're dead. And so don't be surprised when eventually this comes to light. And we know this. We've seen pastors in America who lately, you know, decide to say, I'm not a Christian anymore. And everybody freaks out. And the thing is, it's like, yeah, that, that's devastating, but think of Judas, Think of the disciples, the apostles. They were duped by him. Judas was bad to the bone all along. John tells us in John twelve five. obviously this is, you know, hindsight is 20, 20. Now the Spirit inspires John to tell us what's going on with Judas. You think of, you know, Mary putting all that uh, perfume on Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her hair, and Judas goes, Hey, why don't we sell this, give it to the poor? He didn't want to give it to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. And then John tells us that Judas actually said this because he liked, he was in charge of the money bag and he liked to take some money for himself. He was a thief. He was greedy. He loved money. And he loved it all along. He only used Jesus to prophet himself and he thought that yeah this probably is the Davidic king and when he gets put on the throne I'm "I'm going to be one of the 12 with him and I'm going to rule with him it's going to be great I'm going to get all this money all this influence all this power and as soon as it came to his attention that this wasn't actually going to happen and that Jesus probably was actually going to die he's like I'll just betray him and get some money so he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver which really isn't that much and not only that but then he betrays him with a kiss and Jesus still calls him friend. But know this, know this, that Jesus' wrath is on Judas right now because he's in hell. He went to hell. He even says that. Better if he was never even born. He's being punished as we speak for betraying Christ. No one was closer to God and still did not believe than Judas Iscariot. No one. Yet, we can't let that be kind of a reason just to brush him off. He's still like you and me. We still have the same, are born into this world with the same sinful nature as Judas. What is it? If you do not know Christ here this morning, what is it that you love more than Christ? For Judas, it was money. What is it for you? Power, influence, relationships, drugs, your reputation. What is it that you love more than Jesus? And then ask yourself is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to burn in hell for eternity? Judas thought that it was worth it. I don't know why. Obviously, because God did not choose him. But nonetheless, think about that this morning. If you do not know Christ, what is it that's keeping you from knowing him? And what I want you to do then is repent and trust in Christ. Whatever it is that you like more than Jesus, get rid of it. Repent and believe in Jesus. And you will have eternal life. And you will escape hell. And your fate does not have to be like Judas. You're still alive, you still have a chance. Repent and believe and follow Christ. Now, we don't need church tradition to fill in the details about Judas's death. We're told that he feels remorse, which is not repentance. He throws the 30 pieces of silver back at the feet of the Pharisees, and then he goes and hangs himself. And then we're told in Acts that as he was hanging on a branch, the branch probably broke because he falls down this hill and hits some rocks and his guts bust open. And so he's laying on the side of a of a half dead with his guts hanging out a shameful death for the betrayer that does not have to be your end if you do not know christ you can repent and believe right now and i urge you to do this so that's it that's the end of our text that's the 12 average ordinary uneducated men but god used them greatly God used them to start the spark of repentance and faith in Christ that will spread across the whole globe and even today has spread in so many places. Billions of people have come to know the Lord since then and God is sovereign over all of it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful for your purposes, so thankful for your plan, so thankful that you have chosen chose these men, Lord, 2,000 years ago to sow the gospel seed into the world, Lord. And we are products of it, Lord. We would not have faith today, Lord, if somebody did not spread the gospel. We would not have faith today, Lord, if you did not train your original men to preach the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing the gospel to us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for raising up leaders even today, Lord. You still do this work. You still call men to serve you vocationally. You still call men to leave their careers and occupations to serve you, Lord, as pastors and teachers and evangelists. Lord, we ask as we even think about this in our own church, appointing elders, Lord, that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom, and that you would be with these men, Lord, that are being appointed to this. In your name we pray. Amen.